Hello and welcome to another episode of Live Booleans. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Alex Ferrabetta. How you doing, Alex? Doing good. You know what I just thought of when... Because I think you said hello and I'm like, I don't think we've ever started an episode with hello. Um, for some reason, I then just started thinking of the weird little... Remember the conga drum we had starting the episodes? Like the... Oh, yeah. Doing. Yeah. That was cool. That was that thing you put together? Should, the early we days. We should do it live. We should bring back a little drum beat. Have, 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 you, play drums, it, have you play it. I have a table. It went like... We're doing... <laughs> Today, we are... We have an awesome episode with Hannah Crosby. Uh, so Hannah is a multidisciplinary artist who's worked across games, motion pictures, for the past 16 years. That's a lot of years, a lot of experience. Uh, Hannah worked at THQ, uh, Rare on multiple console titles. Uh, Hannah did some stuff in prop uh, sculptures and art for film as well. So, you know, on Thor Ragnarok, uh, Godzilla vs Kong, uh, Love and Monsters. Uh, and most recently, Hannah is a senior 3D artist at Gameloft Brisbane, who recently created the breathtaking environments seen in the official successor to the Oregon Trail on Apple Arcade. Mm. So we, we came across Hannah at a talk in uh, at GCAP uh, a few months ago on the topic show don't tell the intricacies of metaphors in visual media. So she was on a panel there basically talking about the visual about metaphors in games and in art um and yeah that was a it was an awesome conversation and we really just wanted to get hannah on the podcast to talk about uh you know the journey to being a senior 3d artist and really even talking about metaphors as well that was something that she she covered in this episode so yeah awesome episode um thoughts on it alex it was real fun it was just i really want to get more uh, in the new year get some more artists on the on the show um yeah real good we talked about unreal engine um she's predominantly as you mentioned she's worked on a whole bunch of different mediums um but unreal engine was a was a new one for her so we shared some war stories i guess with that or i think we did um and a lot of advice i remember yeah just a lot of advice i think we talked about uh that as well of like picking a path like what to stick to um you know the age-old debate of as an artist or as anyone in game development do you focus on one area or if you have a lot of talents in a lot of areas or i should say interests in a lot of areas is it better to diversify um arguments for both um and yeah we we get into that in with this we don't have an argument that sounded like we we as in metaphorically around the world with this topic there is arguments for either side um that it was a it was a really good chat and um yeah excited to hear it yeah and Oregon Trail, check it out if, if you haven't checked it out. Enjoy. Mm.
Cool. All right. Again, thank you so much, Hannah, and sorry so much for those tech problems. <laughs> That's guest, quite all right. First guest in the uh, in our new studio. Yeah. We're usually doing this solely remote. Costa and I in different parts of the. Of the city. Of the city, yeah, we're still around, but yeah. Oh, that's kind of exciting for you getting to actually record in the same room and Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we have you here as like an actual guest rather than like yeah. a work call Zoom kind of thing, you know, it actually feels it feels good. So yeah, thank you so much for, for joining us. We um ever since we saw your talk at um GCAP this year, mm. we were like, yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you enjoyed it. That's one of the really satisfying things about doing a talk at um, something like GCAP is when people actually get something out of it. I think that's the biggest fear when you go to do a talk is that you'll be nattering away for 40 minutes and then people will be like, oh, God, that was a waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we, uh, yeah, we, yours was actually the first yeah, talk. Yeah, it was the first talk we went to and we just loved it. Like the the panel, I think, uh, just around like metaphors in, in, in visual media, like there was so much there that was covered, like from, you know, all the things like with shapes and, and everything as well. It was like, we'll get into it later, but I was just mm. like, I didn't know any of this this stuff, you know, was uh, was looked at in this way. So it was, it was really good to kind of, yeah, get that. Yeah. Yeah, it's fun getting to um, talk about art stuff like that. I think that uh, GCAP sometimes suffers from not having enough art-based talks, so they're always really excited to be able to get a bunch of artists in a room talking about what they do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember you being incredibly humble when uh, when they were asking you questions. You're like, I don't know where, how much I can help you, but you, know, you would. It's always the quiet ones that are, you know, the wisdom. Yeah, it's a tricky thing because I suppose, like, um, yeah, the talk was on you know visual metaphor in um, games art, and I think a lot of artists don't consciously spend a lot of time thinking about their art. Um, to that level, like on those high level concepts all the time. So to suddenly be asked to talk about it, like as an artist, mm-hmm. not just as a technician, which, you know, we often are, is like, yeah, a little bit intimidating. You're sort of like, oh, I don't know what I'm talking about. You know, <laughs> don't ask me these complicated questions. <laughs> I'm just an artist. Yeah, well, just an artist. So we'll get into that because we were, you know, we researched the guests and everything and you see what you've done. There's mm-hmm. a part that I definitely want to launch into. That's, that comes off in a bad way, like launch into it as if I'm going to be like, what? No, no, I'm excited to talk to you about is, um, so when I was at GCAP, I was showing my portfolio to a few um, different studios. It wasn't looking for anything just to be like, hey, what do you think of this? Um, what can I improve on? And uh, I came from an indie studio that I started, and so my portfolio was a bit all over the place. I had some 3D art, I had some UI art and things like that, and everyone kept saying, the people I spoke to kept saying like, what do you want to do? Like you need to pick one and just stick with it. And I was so like, I don't know. I, I, I like to do a bunch of different things. And then I saw your work history. <laughs> You've gone like actual physical prop making, 2D art, 3D art. And like at the same time, like jumping between. And I was like, okay, well, here's someone who's doing what they <laughs> want. You know? what, what do you think of that? Like, do you think you have to stick to one? Or I mean, clearly you didn't. You've got a bunch. Oh, that's actually a bit of a tricky thing. I'd say that um, the whole, like, you have to specialise and you have to pick one thing to show is very relevant when you're going for um, jobs, especially when you're starting out, being able to say, this is what I do and this is where I slot into your company and into your job role that you've advertised nice and seamlessly is, like, really great for getting hired, 
But I think that over the course of a career, and I've been doing this now for like 16 years, you do move around. Um, and especially in something like the Australian games industry, where sometimes the work is not there as consistently, sometimes people do move into even related industries, like out of games completely. And then, um, you know, back again, as I did, uh, I did a talk about that actually, um, a couple of years ago after I'd gotten back into games after doing practical film work for a while, because in some ways, I think I was trying to reassure myself that I hadn't just, you know, spent eight years detouring out into a completely unrelated area that was going to give nothing to my games career and was just going to be a bit of a blip. Um, and the talk kind of covered the crossover because I think that uh, all areas of art, even when they're not in games specifically, cross over and you actually become a stronger artist if you have other areas that you know how to do. I think that being too much of a specialist can make you a bit brittle. Like you only know the things, you know, you don't know anything outside of that. And that's great. If you want to go work for like a really massive company, like Ubisoft or something like that, where you might become the rock texture guy and that's all you do day in, day out. But I think like definitely the Australian industry rewards people being slightly more generalist because you have more options and also you can do more in a project, especially in small studios, you might be expected to wear a lot of different hats. So knowing how to do a lot of different things is a a benefit, I think. Um, But it definitely can sometimes make you a bit hard to nicely slot into a position that's being advertised. Mm. So like knowing how to pitch yourself, I guess, is um, the the trick to having a lot of different skills. Yeah, sure. So so your your pathway through it was a bit more structured as like it was just happenstance that you, not I say happenstance, a lot of work and happenstance that you go from (laughs) physical prop making to then 2D and 3D. Um, like it made sense at the time, but if you look back at it, you go, wow, that was actually a, a roller coaster. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, when I initially got into games, I studied animation initially. Um, that was the course I was doing, animation for screen. And they incidentally taught us 3D modeling as part of the course. I found out fairly quickly that I was a better 3D modeler than I was an animator. But having done the animation course, I think made me a better character modeler because I knew how to model for animation. And that's a really important thing. Like if you're just a character modeler, you've never animated, you don't know how your models are getting used. So I think like that sort of fed into, you know, me potentially being a better um, character modeler, but I didn't get into that straight away either because character modeling is a little bit more of a sought after niche kind of um, skill set. Like there's usually less character modelers in a studio than there are environment artists. Mm. So when I was a junior, I got hired as a prop and environment artist because that's what they needed. Um, I remember they did give me an art test to make sure I actually could do environmental stuff because there was nothing on my portfolio that said I could do it. Uh, So they did give me an art test. But, yeah, then I came on and became a a prop artist at at THQ for a, a number of years and did level art and things. I always wanted to do character art, so I kind of, you know, moved myself in that direction. And I think that can be a, um, a thing that you can do once you sort of get that whole foot in the door situation is, yeah, move into different areas that you're more interested in. It does kind of happen sort of naturally and organically. I think you sort of move into areas that interest you. Like I find these days I do a lot more um, level and environment art. Mm-hmm. I've sort of gone back to that and I've become interested in some of the tech art side of doing shaders and things now that um, the company I'm working with uses Unreal and it's like, way more accessible for artists in a way that it never was when I did all this sort of stuff initially. And so now I'm kind of not, you know, moving into tech art, but like there are areas that I'm 
branching out into um, that I've never explored before in my career. But yeah, I think you just kind of do it quite organically. I guess, you know, the biggest change in my career was when I decided to go and uh, retrain essentially into like physical um, art making. And so that was a big change, but the same basic art skills, you, you, you use them like regardless of the medium that you're working in. And computers are just like one medium that you can work in as an artist, I guess. Yeah. How did you find that going to physical and then kind of back into like, you know, 3D and that kind of stuff? Was that an easy transition or did you, was there like probably, I mean, I'm going to say there was definitely learning difficulties. What, what was that process like? I think like when I went back to 3D after having done um, film stuff for a few years, one of the key differences was I probably stopped doing games um, full time. I still did, you know, the occasional small project here and there, but I stopped doing it full time for about eight years, including like while I was at uni, I did a full bachelor's course, you know, all the training and then spent about five years working in film. And in that amount of time, I'd gone from working on like PlayStation 2, Xbox 360 kind of console games um, when I was doing games previously to doing mobile games, because that's kind of what the Australian industry evolved into um, by the time, you know, there were jobs available for me to kind of go back into that. And the technology had moved on so much that most of the skills I had from like, um, you know, mid 2000s consoles were now applicable to mobile. So it was surprising how little of a learning curve there was in some ways. Like, you know, I could basically transfer the same kind of um, skill sets, but there were definitely, you know, new programs to learn. Like we'd never used um, any of the substance suite, like uh, substance painter and things. So there was a whole new pipeline of how to create assets and textures that wasn't something I'd used before. So it was definitely like a learning curve getting back into it. But um, yeah, I think like the same art skills that I'd used previously and that I'd used in film, I'd just been developing those over the years, just in different mediums. But some of the stuff that I learned when I was doing film work was like um, even stuff in set dressing uh, or in the sculpture departments that I worked in, I was able to take that back into my 3D work as a level artist and draw on that experience. Like it wasn't, you know, wasted effort in a completely different field. And I think that like learning a bit more about film and theater, which I did in uni kind of helped um, with some of the the level art and environment art stuff that I do now, because I learned more about like lighting shots, framing shots, um, how to dress a scene, that kind of thing. Yeah. I was going to say that that definitely would have um, uh, poured into like, if you're, if you're dressing stuff physically, do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it, environments that kind of stuff like that for sure that would have um gone into the is that does that also kind of push you into your interest of, of moving into environment and level stuff as well well again the, you do sort of fall into some of these things i actually originally started at game loft as a character artist because oh, right. that was what most of my portfolio was at that point and um yeah, they hired me as a character artist for a particular project uh, that got to beta and didn't get released. And the next project, they needed more environment artists. Um, and so I sort of put my hand up for doing some of that kind of work and, yeah, just ended up kind of falling into it and then found that I was really enjoying um, learning a lot of the new skills that I needed to to learn to get back into um, uh, environment art as it's done, you know, now in mobile games and, you know, I find the learning is one of the things I enjoy most about my job. So like moving between different areas for me is what keeps it kind of fresh and interesting. Um, and so, 
yeah, like moving into different departments is always that new challenge of like, oh, I have to learn a, a new skill and that's fun for me. <laughs> yeah. And is that something you have to kind of put your hand up and say, I want to move into this, like I want to do this thing? Is it kind of or like in a, in a large studio, you know, you've got, like you mentioned, you have more kind of specialised people who work in certain areas. Mm-hmm. What's it like kind of, um, yeah, putting yourself out there to to try different things? Oh, yeah, it's definitely a little bit uh, nerve-wracking. Yeah. I suppose um, – I don't know if I've ever had a clear plan for my career. Like some people know, you know, where they want to be in five years and and what uh, job specifically they're working towards. I've often gone with the flow a little bit um, with the opportunities that presented themselves. So it wasn't so much a case of like um, I went, oh, I want to go work in environment arts. Like, oh, we need environment artists. I was like, oh, I can do that. And so I sort of started doing some of that stuff because it needed to be done and it was interesting to me. Um, Yeah, I guess – you know, following up with my lead and my art director about where I do want to go, because I certainly don't want to leave my character stuff behind is important to like, keep them informed of, you know, whether I'm happy in my current role, what areas I want to move into. Um, yeah, definitely like making sure you don't get too swept away with the flow is something I have to watch out for. Cause, uh, I am one of those sort of people where it's like, if an opportunity presents itself to do something new, I'll kind of be like, Oh yeah, that sounds interesting. I'll go to that. <laughs> Yeah. What would be your your next step? Well, like not necessarily next step, but what's a part of the pipeline you haven't done yet and you're like, I really want to do that? Ooh. You know, I've been getting into doing lighting stuff. It's Mm. another one of those like, you know, I need to do it as part of my environment art and level art work and I don't understand it well enough to do the things I want to do. So it's always that interesting challenge of like understanding how you can use the tools to make the art that you want to make. So, you know, trying to get that vision out of your head and onto the screen. Um, so yeah, like spending a bit more time learning how Unreal uses lighting and how we can like get the the visual effects that we want, because sometimes you're like, Oh, I know what I want it to look like and it's just not there yet. And so, yeah, it'd be great to spend a bit more time because like lighting absolutely changes the way your art looks on screen. And, um, yeah, if, if I am able to have more control over that by knowing how to do it myself, then I can control what my art looks like. So that's something I definitely want to spend more time, you know, learning about. Yeah. And it, it's, it's interesting the way you, you, you put that. Cause like, um, you know, like when, like when you, when you're starting out and, uh, you ask someone like, you know, you, you admire, you're like, uh, like what, what skills do you want to improve in? And, and they go, like how you said, you're like, oh, you know, lighting, I want to get better at that. And then like someone like me would be like, oh no, like you're already really great at it. Like what else is there to get better? What am I not seeing, you know, in, in regular lighting? So I guess what you're looking at, like you're, you're past the big block details of, you know, three point lighting or scenes lit. You're, you're talking more about like, uh, I don't know, like, um, like what, 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 what kind of elements of the lighting do you see that you're like, that's a really part, hard part to nail or, like, oh, one of the the big challenges I find is um, because I'm working with a company that does mobile games is you often have to work with really limited resources. Mm-hmm. So uh, in most of the games that I've been working on with Gameloft, um, we have one ambient like sunlight and one directional light. Oh, wow. And the trick is how do we get the um, the visual effects that we want uh 
out of that like really limited palette essentially um i've been experimenting a little bit with cube maps and how those work because they're not something i've ever really touched before but they allow you to kind of get a little bit more out of the lights so it's kind of um overcoming the challenge of working with that like really limited resource that you do in mobile because you can't necessarily do cool three-point lighting. You can't have like little point lights that illuminate certain areas. So it's all that, like, how do you fake it? How do you um, make it look like there's more happening in the scene than there actually is? Which, yeah, always makes me think of like how when I was doing like PlayStation 2 games, mm -hmm. we would use all of these tricks to give the impression that things were going on when they actually weren't because it was um, like the technology was so limited that, you couldn't do certain things like even reflections. I remember um, for one uh, job I did on um, Avatar, the last airbender, we wanted this beautiful reflective marble floor in a building and we couldn't do reflections. They were I don't know, too expensive or, you know, the, um, the engine just couldn't support them. So the way we got around the problem was by actually duplicating the geometry of like all the pillars and, and things in the, um, the room and reversing them down under the ground and then having a semi-transparent like single layer of floor because like one layer of transparency was something the engine could handle yeah so like it gave this beautiful uh, impression of like you know the um the pillars sort of you know uh, reflecting off into the floor and then we use like a bit of transparency to make them fade out so it looked like oh yeah obviously you don't get like a perfectly clear reflection all the way down so there are all these tricks to create something quite simple that probably no one appreciated how much work had gone into because like of course a shiny floor is reflective that's yeah. what you expect to see <laughs> well that's good though that then you're because you're still having to solve those problems that's another thing i was wondering is like um you know people coming in now kind of see those days as like the playstation 2 days the n64 days as like the almost like the wild west of game development right because like <laughs> you had to come up with these kind of things and to us, they sound nostalgic. They're like, wow, that would be so much fun. And I imagine at the time it was like panic and hitting your head against the wall. And so now that you're, you know, you're, you're still having those limitations, but you've also worked in, you know, the VFX part where mm. sky's the limit, I guess, because it's all rendered. Like that's a big difference is that it hasn't been rendered. Oh, well, no, that was the thing. I never really worked in VFX in film. Mm. I think that's what people often assume when they hear that I do film stuff and I'm a 3D artist because that's like the natural progression. A lot of my friends um, who worked in games got into VFX when there weren't games jobs available. Um, but no, I actually didn't use my 3D for any of that kind of stuff. I, I used it for 3D um, printing and like making 3D models that would be CNC milled. Yeah. Um, so still like making practical props. I think I've always had to work within the restrictions when I've been doing digital stuff because, um, yeah, we've never gotten like nice pre-rendered sort of yeah. things. But like... I think every generation of technology, uh, you're always solving problems and, and figuring out how to, um, you know, create like a visual trick because I think as artists, we're always like pushing right up against what the technology can do. Like whatever the technology currently is, we're always like right up the limit being like, but what if we could get it to do this? And like, but yeah. it can't do that. Yeah. But how can we make it look like it is? <laughs> <laughs> what, um, what what was some of the the games you were playing? Well, what was let's say the game that you played where you were like, yeah, I really want to do this. I think. Oh, like when I was starting out, and I yeah. Oh, that's yeah. 
kind of stuff was I playing back then? I played a lot of um, like early Tomb Raider games, mm-hmm. like those yeah. kind of ones. I played a lot of The Sims. I think <laughs> yes. The Sims was, although, you know, maybe it's not like the visually the most exciting one, it was the one that made me realize I could maybe do this as a job because uh, one of the things that they do is they made modding really easy for The Sims. So they gave you access just by going through like the, um, the folders on your computer to all the texture files and the 3D files. And so I would do things like I would go in and update the textures for like the outfits and the faces and things like that and make my own characters for the game. And like realizing that it could be that simple, like that this wasn't some sort of black black box where, you know, game came out, but you know, you don't know how any of it actually happens. Getting that little bit of insight into how it's actually put together was something that made me like really excited about the idea that maybe I could do this. Um, But yeah, definitely like the visual stuff. I remember I played Earthworm Jim 3D back when like putting 3D on, (laughs) this makes me sound so old, putting 3D on like a game title was like a big draw. It's like, ooh, 3D games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Duke Nukem 3D. Oh, yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah, I remember playing Duke Nukem on my my cousin's computer because I was probably like way too young. My parents would never have bought me that. He was like, I don't know, 17-year-old boy and like I was this (laughs) like 10-year-old girl being like, oh, my God, this is amazing. (laughs) Oh man, that's so different. My dad was just like, here you go, here's something I yeah, found yeah. at work. I was like 10, I was <laughs> nine. Oh my God. No, um, and well, that's interesting as well because even like with the modding, modding is the ult- is probably one of the ultimate working within the constraints because the game's already been made and no matter mm-hmm. what you create, kind of still has to fit within those things. So, so really the thing that got you into gaming was something that you've constantly been working with, which is the... Uh, working within the limitations and trying to get the best out of it. Yeah, definitely. And like, I suppose, yeah, working within, I don't think I appreciate it then, but like, um, yeah, modding stuff and working within the way the game's already been built is definitely a good skill to have when you do eventually um, get a career as an artist, because when you join a studio, they generally have a pipeline and they have made content, especially if it's an ongoing game, like a sequel or, you know, you're joining partway through a project um, you have to be able to work with what's already been created and make your art style fit in with what's, you know, already in there. So like, yeah, even with the Sims, sure. You could create technically anything you wanted, but it wouldn't look right in the game if you didn't make it look like their style. So yeah, I, I don't think I really appreciated it at the time, but it was actually a really good introduction to becoming a professional artist and having to join a project and, make your art sort of suit the style of the project and work within the technical limitations. Like all of the texture had been unwrapped in a certain way, like with the UVs laid out in a certain way. So you had to work with that. And like, you'd end up with these faces that were like roadkill stretched across (laughs) the the textures. And like, they looked fine once they're on the model, but like when you were working with them in Photoshop, you know, repainting them, you had to, I guess, work with them as they'd been created by the original creators. So Yeah. yeah. It was always scary when uh, I know the Sims did this in one of the uh, like unofficial mod releases that you could do in other games. where you you could take a photo of yourself and put it on the face, mm. and it, everyone just ends up looking like they have like a nylon stocking over their head, like everything's just washed and <laughs> you got to rob a bank yeah, or something yeah. like. Something. Um, and you you touched on like limitations earlier, and I, I mean I've I've seen the work that you did on on Oregon Trail, and it's like. You're talking about lighting being restricted and all this stuff, but it looks like 
you wouldn't like if I was someone who has has no idea about lighting or three D, like I would have no idea. Like it, it still looks amazing, and it, you know. Oh, to be fair. Um, the lighting on that, our technical artist, Bruno, created a whole custom lighting system oh, for wow. that game. So I can't take credit for the lighting on yeah, that yeah. game. He made my work look amazing because, um, yeah, like part of his job as a technical artist is to create tools that allow the artists to get the effects that we want, um, mm-hmm. to, but without having to actually dive into the nitty-gritty stuff of the engine. Mm-hmm. And so he created this really great tool where we could um, change all the, the lighting uh, set up the colors, the directionality of the sunlight, all that sort of thing. And yeah, like that was really good. And it was something that we created very specifically because we wanted to use unreal, which is a 3d engine and designed to do like highly realistic, you know, first person shooter kind of games. And we wanted to take it and make a side scrolling 2d style game with like quite stylized art and so we sort of needed this really custom setup for the lighting in that situation because um like just using the lighting as it kind of comes out of the package just wasn't going to work for us at all um but yeah definitely like understanding how a lot of that works more uh is something i find really interesting because like as an artist, being able to work with your technical artists and yep. use their tools to the best advantage because you actually understand how they work yep. is always a good thing. And is that is that like a lot of back and forth between like you know the, the, the artist and and the person who's um, creating the you know the the pipeline or the, uh, the technology to actually get the, like the best outcome of, of what you're what you're looking for? Oh, definitely. Like generally, we'll you know come up with a brief of like we'd like to be able to do this. And then the technical artist will go away and they'll make this and then they'll give it to us. They'll explain how it works and everything. And then often like we'll end up coming back, like, could you also add in a functionality to do this and a button that we could do that? And could you make it do this thing as well? Yeah. <laughs> like there's always like these constant upgrades and like the artists will usually end up trying to push the piece of technology to its limits of like what it can possibly do. And then often the technical artist has to come back in and like retrofit some new features to make it actually able to do that. Cause sometimes we'll end up doing like a hacky workaround because like it's almost there. But if I do this and this and, you know, um, uh, maybe use it in a way it wasn't originally intended, I get the effect that I want. <laughs> and then eventually the technical artist will like see what you've done with it. And like, you know, I could have just put a button in for that. Like you could have told me you needed to do that. <laughs> uh, I remember that. We, uh, a, a game I was working on a while ago, um, we needed like a roller coaster system and like the program. We we were we all were trained in Unreal, but we just come out of study, so like everything that we did was very rudimentary. And the programmer spent ages working on this roller coaster system, and me having no idea about the programming and everything, I like took it and broke it in one second. And the look on his face is just scarred in my mind. George, I'm sorry. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's really interesting. I think um, doing the environment art, one of the like uh, fun things I found um, as opposed to doing character art is you spend so much more time talking to the programmers and the designers, like character artists can kind of work in their own little bubble and like they'll talk to maybe the, the rigging artist and the animators, but they don't tend to touch on the whole project as much. And one of the things I've enjoyed about getting back into environment art is spending more time talking to the programmers and learning about what they do and, and uh, getting them to, you know, create bits of tech that will allow me to do things and like learning how to work with the, um, the custom tech that they've created mm. and sometimes breaking it, <laughs> having those conversations. 
<laughs> so like, I'm so sorry. I thought it was going to be able to do this. And like, we had no idea you would try and do that with it. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's a good thing as well with, um, uh, that's the whole selling point of Unreal Engine, isn't it? One of the one of the many is is that it allows a, an artist to become a, a tech artist. I think one of the talks it was um, uh, what's that? Alex Alex Stevens was at mm. GCAP, and he had said that um, uh, like the strength of Unreal. Um, oh, no, no, it wasn't Alex Stevens. He was he was in the audience. Sorry, I, I can't it would have been uh, maybe Chris Murphy. No, it wasn't Chris. It was it was another one who was on the program. I, but I'm pretty sure Chris. Actually, you know what? No, I think you're right. Sorry, I think you are right. I think it was Chris. Um, it was. It's it's so you don't have to keep going to the program and say, "Can you make this? Can you make this?" We now have the tools where we can just mm. do it ourselves. And I imagine that's been a lot of fun. Like moving into. I mean, it sounds like you've been working with Unreal Engine for a while, but um, getting to use that and be able to become the tech artist yourself, and especially with yeah. I mean, certainly I would never go so far as to call myself a tech artist because I know just enough about what they do to realize how terrible I am at their job. Um, but definitely, I think I remember the talk that you you uh, are referring to. I went to that one as well where it was talking about like um, allowing artists to actually interact with things like blueprints and shading, uh, you know, shader networks and stuff like that so that they can do a little bit more of stuff that kind of thing themselves because yeah years ago especially when you used custom engines artists were pretty much locked out of anything that was in engine because it was kind of too technical for us honestly it wasn't very artist friendly like unless you were a programmer or you knew you know intimately how the engine worked you really couldn't interact with it it wasn't like a very visual sort of thing and unreal has been a great um chance to actually yeah learn how the engine works and be able to do a lot more of that technical stuff myself um like i yeah definitely wouldn't say that i'm you know close to being a, a technical artist or anything like that i've only just started using unreal in the last couple of projects that i've done with gameloft but it's amazing how quickly it i've been able to pick it up because it is a really nice visual medium like even um creating shaders and materials is like very very visual and while i probably don't understand some of the high level technical stuff like i can bash together something that kind of works and then show it to a technical artist and they'll be like oh that's ugly but I can see <laughs> what you're trying to do yeah. and sometimes like it's like communicating that to them in their own language so if you can show them what you're trying to make like a prototype version sometimes it's easier for them to understand it's like oh yeah I can see what you're trying to do because mm. um, sometimes like overcoming that language barrier between programmers and artists can be a little bit tricky like even with technical artists and artists sometimes you can struggle to really communicate what it is you need out of uh, a piece of tech but if you can bash together a prototype sometimes that's like you know the best thing yeah for sure and uh, speaking of the language barrier it feels uh, programs are the ones the, le the least adamant ones to get onto unreal engine um they want to <laughs> stick with unity and yeah yeah we know a lot of uh, programmers who just do not want to touch unreal just stick to, to Unity. Like, I don't know, maybe that's an Adelaide thing. I'm not sure, but. Ah, uh, that's funny. I mean, I guess, um, yeah, probably some programmers see stuff like blueprints and things as like, that's not real programming. Yeah. I'm like, it sort of isn't in the sense of like, it's a UI layer on top of a, um, a system that allows people who can't program to create things using the, the programming for, you know, that is in Unreal. But we have a lot of programmers um, on our team who do like pure C++ coding mm. and they're able to like 
really deep dive into the engine itself and make major changes to like the fundamental way that some things work and, and like code their own systems and things like that. So yeah, I guess it depends maybe how you, how you like coding as a programmer. I don't really know enough about it to know (laughs) which which one's better unity or unreal or anything. Yeah. With, um, with Oregon trail, did you ever play the original one? I I never played it, but I I saw the, the art style of it and it's like, like completely 2D, right? Oh, yeah. Like it's not even um, – I think even calling it 2D is like generous. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, like the pixel art was like, you know, 20 pixels for the entire scene right. or something like that. It was like the black background with the lime green pixels and like maybe you had like a, you know, 64 or 128 um, shot, but – yeah, you're working with such limited graphics. It was really more like symbols representing yeah. what was going on on screen. Like you'd have the symbol of the yeah. um, the bison and the the cart, and like you'd have almost like a symbol of the river. But yeah, visually there was like very little to go on. You had to use pretty much your whole imagination to what, to what, <laughs> come up with what was going on. Yeah. I mean, what what was it like taking like you know? I mean, obviously it's it's a new kind of game, but like looking at that and then going, you know, how do we how do we make the environment more than just these symbols? You know, I mean, like, was there, like, was there, what was that process like of, um, of taking that and, and, you know, making it new for, for a new audience? Well, definitely. I think we wanted to try and keep the feeling of the original game, which was that like 2d side scrolling, um, kind of aesthetic because it's not like there haven't been other Oregon trail games made. There are dozens of them out there. Um, but a lot of them have, deviated so much from like the original format of the original game that they're kind of like in name only. Um, They're about the same thing, you know, the trek across the Oregon trail, but the gameplay and the um, experience isn't necessarily the same kind of thing. So we kind of wanted to go back to the roots of the original game and yeah, like with the original game where the graphics are kind of just symbols to show you, you know, where you are and, and give you an idea of what's going on it was kind of decided that they would be like this background thing. Like the environment really isn't interactable um, in any way. It's there to be like a beautiful backdrop. And one of the things the original or like some of the very early versions of the original did was when you got to a location, you got this big, beautiful vista of the location done in incredibly simple pixel art in about three colors. Um, But you could see what they were trying to do was create, you know, these uh, big vista panorama images of the location because they wanted to show off the beautiful natural environment. So that was like, we wanted to try and channel that desire from the original game to show the beauty of the natural environment and like the scale of the, um, the characters in this huge world and do what they couldn't do with the technology they had at the time. Cause like if they'd had the technology we had now, I'm sure that's what they would have tried to do is like to create some much more cool, impressive visuals. Um, but they again were like limited by the technology of the time, just like we all are. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting. It's like it's almost like that whole you know. It's kind of, kind of like the panel of like here are some metaphors of how we can convey you know an awesome huge vista like um, you, you know with with the technology that they had at the time. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So what what was um, I guess what was that that process like of uh, you know being able to. Uh, have a have a different kind of feeling for the different areas um in the game as well was there you know was there similar things you did with like symbols or any other kind of metaphors you tried to put in there 
Ooh, yeah. That's a good point, actually. I suppose, like, we were definitely trying to capture just, like, the beauty of the natural landscape. So, um, like you said, you know, the lighting was really beautiful in that game, yeah. you know, thanks to our, our technical artist. And that was one of the things that we really wanted to capture was having a moving sun mm -hmm. to capture, like, the changing times of day and, and like the feeling of time passing was kind of important. Like sometimes you'd have these big empty vistas where there's like really not a lot going on in the background yeah. and you just, you know, occasionally get like a tree go past and maybe a cow or something like that. And, you know, the sun would be turning overhead and to try and capture that feeling of long tracts of time passing while you're you know doing this, you know, a lot of the time, fairly uneventful journey. If you're really lucky on the Oregon Trail, it's an uneventful journey. <laughs> you know, you're constantly having all of these uh, terrible things happen to you. So I guess we wanted the environment to be the counterpoint to all the nasty things that always end up happening to everyone mm -hmm. when they're playing the Oregon Trail, like snake bites and dysentery and everything it was like the, the beautiful natural environment they were passing through was kind of, you know, always there in the background and, and um, you know, this backdrop to the kind of, horrible day-to-day -day life events that were going on. Um, so, yeah, we wanted to make, like, big environments that made the characters feel small and, yeah. you know, a little bit insignificant as they're, you know, passing through them. But, you know, also show, like, the really pristine nature of the environment because this was when, you know, settlers, um, European settlers had first started moving across parts of these, uh, of the country. Like, they hadn't really been developed the way they eventually would become you know, they were still very much in the natural environment, like trying to capture that feeling of like the beautiful environment that these settlers would have been going through as they're experiencing like the humdrum day to day and like occasionally horrible accidents that they would have, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it shows, I mean, you can see it like, you know, the, the environments, like there's just so much going on in the background, like between the trees, the layers, you know what I mean? Like there's, there's buildings, there's, it's just, there's, there's so much more depth to it than, um, than, you know, I'm only looking at the really the original one, but like, mm -hmm. it's just so much more, uh, you know, vibrancy to, to the environment. Yeah. We wanted to definitely create that feeling of like, um, you know, the distance going off way off into the distance, you know? Um, but the interesting thing was like, we actually couldn't create huge vistas technically. Like the technical limitation we had was because, the environment actually um, repeats. We have like, uh, it's slightly randomly generated and it'll pull, you know, level sections out of a, um, you know, a bucket of like, oh, you're traveling through the prairies right now. So we'll give you prairie backgrounds. We'll give you prairie levels, but there's actually only like a small handful of them. So we wanted to create, um, you know, a bit of variety and stuff. So we had like the foreground and the background, would be interchangeable. So you could have, you know, one foreground with a different background and then see the, the same foreground with another different background and now, you know, swapping them back and forth. So we had this technical limitation of we couldn't actually create like massive big environments. So there's these little tiny slivers. If you look at the game, like not in the, the camera view, um, we had the camera set up very specifically to give that kind of parallax effect. So you're looking off into what seems to be this long depth of environment. It's actually not. It's actually very compressed. And, um, yeah, it, it's a lot of visual trickery to create the the feeling that you're traveling through, you know, like a really deep – and you kind of are like this deep box of an environment where the background's back here, but 
the distance between, you know, a tree in the background and in the foreground is actually like really compressed. Mm. <laughs> and what about um looking at the screen caps as well, is the the colour is the fir- is one of the big things that you you see first. What kind of um uh role speaking of the I'll drop yeah. on the yeah. the symbolism trail. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what was the kind of the role that colour plays in it? Hmm. Yeah, I don't know if we was like picking specific colours for particular um, areas, but I know that we really wanted to yeah, make the natural light look very beautiful. We wanted to really capture that like um, golden hour time where the sun is setting and you get all of the, the beautiful golden hues going out over the environment and like the, the light sort of, you know, blinking and shining through the trees. And I remember we actually set up our time of day system so that time technically slows down very slightly around like dawn and sunset so that you can experience like that long, you know, beautiful moment just a little bit more. So yeah, it was, I suppose just building on that idea of like trying to make the natural environment as beautiful as possible and to like draw out those like really pretty moments, like the sun setting in the background with the lovely, you know, orange afternoon light and the the sun, you know, glinting through the trees as you're passing by and all that kind of things like, um, yeah, to really kind of draw on those and draw draw them out so that you could enjoy them for longer. But, yeah, keeping all the colours, like, really saturated and bright and vibrant because everything's so fresh and new and, you know, this beautiful, exciting new world that the settlers are moving through that hasn't been, you know, as it would eventually, um, you know, being destroyed in any way, it's still all fresh and vibrant and green and, you know, all the, the nice bright colours. Yeah, funny that was funny that applied to real life. We could draw out the the nice sunsets <laughs> and the nice you know, yeah. sunrises. Yeah, yeah. Um, what do you what do you get to work on in your in like your own time? Like, do you have the energy once you've you know finished it, uh, working professionally on it? Do you get to come home and work on something yourself? Sometimes, yeah. I think it is definitely that case of like trying to find the creative energy after you've already put like everything you've got into, you know, eight hours in the office um, working on a project to come home and kind of find that energy again. What I often end up doing is working on um, art or objects that are really different from what I'm currently working on at work because like on a, a longer project, you know, if you're going over a year or so for a project, you're doing the same style of art and often like you know, the similar sorts of props or things because I'm doing environment art now, what I end up doing when I come home and I feel like I want to get some, you know, creative stuff done is I'll often end up doing some character art because that's not what I'm doing. Maybe I'll do something that's a bit more realistic or I'll just pick like a really different art style because, yeah, I think it stops the work that you're doing during the day on your day-to-day project feeling stale because, you know, you, you can eventually get bored of doing the same thing over and over again, no matter how fun it is initially. So for me, doing something very different when I'm doing my own creative work is important. But, yeah, it's also very much finding finding the time and the energy is, is hard. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, we spoke to someone recently who likened it, like an, another artist, um, oh, yeah. who likened it to eating ice cream. He was just like, it does the same part of his brain <laughs> Making art <laughs> as eating ice cream, like for him, he, he has to has do to it. it yes. uh, is that a similar thing as well? Yeah, I think definitely. And, you know, when, again, like you're working professionally, sometimes you're not always working on the exact thing that you would choose to be working on. It depends, like, what your team is like, what level you're at in your team, how much creative control you have. So even as an artist, 
sometimes you, you know, I certainly feel like maybe I'm not being as creative as I want to be. I'm not doing the work that I would choose to do if I had complete free reign. Um, and so, yeah, for me doing like, you know, a very different style than what I'm currently working on or doing something where I don't have a lot of technical limitations, because that's something, you know, we work with every day when we're doing um, our practical projects in the office. It's like you're always up against like the technical limitations and having to do things to a certain pipeline. So sometimes it can be very freeing, I think, to just do a sculpt in ZBrush. And like, are you going to unwrap it? No, because that's not the fun bit. So I'm just going to do the fun bit because that's <laughs> what I do for me. <laughs> that's that's a really good point. Um, and I uh, don't know if a lot of listeners, if they're um, – if they're in a similar studio situation or if they're, you know, working on their own projects, but there's, there's a lot of strength to what you're saying. Like there's a, just the, if you're, if depending on the size of the studio, isn't it? There's, it's such a small wriggle room mm. of you you realize how much uh, you miss or how much you don't actually get to do because even down to, you're saying technical limitations, there's too many, uh, well, you were an animator and then you were doing mobile. I'm pretty sure, like, you know, character mm. rigging had its limitations on mobile and, and just stuff. Oh, like definitely. Yeah. Like poly yeah. counts and things. Like, you know, one of the reasons you see such amazing things on people's portfolios is because, like, it's just a portfolio piece. Mm. It doesn't have to run efficiently. Yeah. It's like when you've got to make, you know, a character that actually has to run, especially on mobile, you are very limited in, like, the texture sizes and the poly counts. So sometimes when, you know, doing your own personal projects, it can be fun to just throw all that out the window and, you know, um, unless you're using it to, like, show that you could do that kind of um, uh, restricted work that is going to actually run. Like, if you're just doing it for yourself, I think that you can afford to just throw all limitations out the window and make something just because it's fun and it looks good and make it as cool looking as you possibly can because, like, that allows you to sort of stretch yourself as an artist and really push um the look of the thing that you're trying to create without having to worry about the restrictions yeah yeah very good and and, and time as well i guess would be a, a restriction as well i imagine time's very hard to come by in a, in a large studio <laughs> oh definitely there's a lot of things where you know not to say oh yeah good enough is good enough but sometimes there is a a balancing act between trying to find the time to make something as good as you want it to look, but also it needs to be ready by a certain date. So if like finding that compromise between like, how good can we make it look in the amount of time that we have available to us and then being satisfied with that, you know, because that's, I think a really hard thing, um, especially as a, a younger artist is like, you're always so ambitious about wanting to make your art look as good as it possibly can do. And sometimes accepting like you will only be able to make it look so good because of technical limitations and because of time limitations like there is sometimes a ceiling on you know what you'd like to be able to achieve because you can't just spend three months working on one character yeah you know? <laughs> yeah that's something because uh yeah i tell uh when i was uh, lecturing in, in game development i'm just being like like you students think this is like the hardest like this is the best time like you have so, you're unlimited you get to do whatever you want right now like uh, if it was uh, one piece of advice you could give to, say, uh, like younger Hannah or someone who, who wants to get into follow your, follow your path, either animation or you've had many paths, what, what, what's something that you want to impart? Ooh. I guess maybe not being too worried about the, the end goal of, like, the position that you want to have or the, 
um, the role that you want to have. Like, obviously that's something that if you're working towards it, you need to have that as like a goal in the distance, but understanding like there is a distance beyond that, that over the course of a really long career, you'll end up doing a lot of different things and that's okay. Like the sort of the meandering path is still an acceptable path rather than the sort of the straight line to the one particular position and getting that, you know, uh, that role you've been seeking for. Because I think that eventually even achieving your dream role can, depending on your temperament, um, become a bit stale after a while. So, uh, yeah, understanding that like the journey doesn't stop and the process of learning doesn't stop. You never, ever stop learning. Mm. Um, I've definitely spoken to younger artists who are surprised to find out that I still do like tutorials and courses, um, even on things as basic as color theory and composition, because I always feel like there's something more I can learn and something more that I can you know, uh, develop into. So yeah, the learning never stops. And like the progression of your yourself as an artist never stops. Yeah. Especially with the rates that the, the software's come out yeah, as well. Sure. Like, as you said, substance painting not being a thing a few years ago and things like that. Oh, definitely. Like that's the thing. Even if you got to be as good as you possibly could be at that one moment in time, then they bring out like a new feature in a new piece of software and <laughs> you need to learn that. And, um, like, yeah, one of the things I find really fun is that a lot of the juniors on our team have been trained in a lot of this new technology now. And so I can learn things from them. Like, it's not a case of, you know, it, it only flows one way. Uh, I find that I still learn a lot of new things from our junior artists because sometimes they look at things with fresh eyes or they've just learned how to do something new. And because they're learning a new piece of software, maybe they're exploring different things that I haven't tried yet because one of the risks when you're a, a more experienced artist is you have your way of doing things that you've always done that has always worked and you don't always go and explore whether or not there's a new way of doing something that's maybe more efficient or more effective. And sometimes someone who's learnt the software more recently than you knows about these new tricks and you can learn from them. Yeah, that's very good. That's a very good point because it's a very because art can be a very personal thing, can't it? So if someone says, oh, I know a better way to do your personal thing, I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know there's always, almost always like this initial pushback of like, oh, it can't possibly be as good as the way I, <laughs> I do things. I've been doing like it like this for years, so it must yeah. be good. And then like, you try it and you're like, actually, that is better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, Hannah, thank you so much for, for coming on and, and sharing your stories with oh, us. Thanks for asking me. It's been loads of fun. Yeah. So where can, uh, where can people find you uh, if they're looking, if they want to, uh, you know, want to find um, your work or reach out and contact you? Um, I've got my website, hannahcrosby.com. And uh, I think that has links to a few other things like my LinkedIn and my art station. Uh, pretty sure it's got my email on it. So if you want to drop me a line and say hi, that's also good. Um, yeah. That's perfect. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Cool.